Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman podcast brought to you by Cameron Hughes Wine. There's a little secret that most people don't know about the highest quality wineries in the United States and how they work. They'll say, you know, as they start their year, okay, we're going to bottle, say, 5,000 bottles of wine this year. And so they overproduce for that, produce enough for maybe 6,000 bottles of wine. But, you know, they've, they've sold 5,000, they're ready to get 5,000 out. And so that's basically all they do under their own label. And then when they're done, they've got casks of wine left over that haven't been bottled. Cameron Hughes contracts with some of the very best vineyards in America to take that essentially surplus wine. I mean, you know, it's the exact same wine you would buy in a bottle for 50, 60, 100. Uh, one of the Cameron Hughes wines I had last week, the retail price, if you knew who the brand was, was over $150 a bottle. Cameron Hughes buys that in bulk, bottles it, puts just a simple number. Here it is, lot 546 or lot 622. Simple number on it, and you get some of the most spectacular wines at huge discounts off what you would normally pay. Cameron Hughes has been doing this since 2001, seeking out high-end wine from around the world and selling it online direct to his customers. This is not just American wines. Earning Cameron Hughes Wine the number one wine brand online. It's just extraordinary stuff. Uh, I recently sampled Lot 609. This is a Cabernet Sauvignon. It was insane. It was so good. It was bold. It was rich. It had the, the black fruit and red licorice and crushed red rock. All these, these extraordinary tastes, juicy and ripe on the palate. You got to check this out. Go to chwine.com slash Tom, T-H-O-M. C-H as in Cameron Hughes. That's his name. He, the guy who started the company and runs it. I've talked with him. He's a great guy and he's doing amazing stuff. chwine.com slash T-H-O-M. Or text the word wine, W-I-N-E. Text the word wine to 511-511 and you'll get free shipping with your minimum three bottle order. So text wine to 511-511. Cameron Hughes Wine. Exceptional value. Extraordinary wine. Now enjoy the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. Rob Reiner is tweeting... Ripping children away from their parents is fascism. Embracing white nationalism throughout the world is fascism. Trying to destroy the free press and the rule of law is fascism. America, keep your eyes wide open. Donald Trump is wearing his racist, fascist badge with pride. Rob Reiner's a good guy. I, uh, well, I need not go into the whole story, but uh, he's a good guy. And I noticed earlier in the week, actually, I think this was over the weekend. No, it was last Friday. A PC intern posted over Democratic Underground. You know, what the blank? I mean, what the blank? I'm saying blanky or she spelled out, you know, the F word. Taking kids away from their parents to give them showers, incarcerating them, and then quoting the Bible to justify it, saying that it's the Democrats who are doing this, lying about everything else profiting from the office of the presidency, condemning and vilifying our staunchest allies and then kowtowing to and praising the worst, most villainous dictators in the world? You know, people take to the streets in other countries when the transit fares are boosted three cents 
Here, this orange U-tan can destroy humanity, and we watch the sports network and drink microbrewery beers. Meanwhile, no one will have a single solitary leg to stand on if he or she is accused of a crime because the system for protecting us will have been destroyed. What, what is it going to take for the other thirds, two-thirds to rise up and say, we're mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore? That's a really good question, uh, PC intern. It's a really good question. And uh, perhaps later today, in all probability tomorrow, I want to get into in some, in some detail what's going on in the rest of the world. Uh, the leader of Romania's governing party, some really interesting news there, stuff going on in Poland, stuff going on in Hungary. We're, we're seeing Turkey. We're seeing European countries flipping fascist. So how does this happen? Milton Mayer wrote this book, and I've, I've quoted from the book many times in this program over the years, perhaps not often enough, because, you know, we, we all should have it basically memorized by now. After World War II, Milton Mayer was a reporter in, in Chicago, and he, he hopped on a plane with, you know, got an assignment from his editor, went to Germany for, for a while. I don't think it was a whole year, but he went to Germany for some substantial period of time and, and, and interviewed in depth 10 people. And that, those 10 interviews are his book. They thought they were free, along with his commentary about it. And all 10 of these people, not, none of these 10 people were like Nazis. They didn't join the Nazi party. They were not, you know, they were just your average, quote, good German. There was a baker. There was a bricklayer. There was a professor, a bunch of them. And he asked them, how did this happen? In fact, when, when Mayer came back to the United States, he, in the introduction to his book, he says, now I see a little better how Nazism overcame Germany, not by attack from without or subversion from within, but with a whoop and a holler. It was what most Germans wanted or under pressure of combined reality and illusion came to want. They wanted it. They got it. They liked it. He said, I came home a little bit afraid for my country. Now keep in mind, this is 1954 he wrote this. I came back a little home a little afraid for my country, afraid of what I it might want and get and like under combined pressure of reality and illusion. I felt and feel that it was not German man that I met, but man. He happened to be in Germany under certain conditions. He might be here under certain conditions. He might under certain conditions be me. If I and my countrymen ever succumbed to that concatenation of conditions, no constitution, no laws, no police, and certainly no army would be able to protect us from harm. So what's Milton Mayer talking about? Well, here's what the college professor said to him. These are the verbatim words of a long dead now, good German college professor, lived through World War II, uh, just caught, taught college from, from the beginning to the end. And this guy says, this separation of government from people, this widening of the gap took place so gradually and so insensibly each step disguised, perhaps not even intentionally, as a temporary emergency measure or associated with true patriotic allegiance or with real social purposes. And all the crises and reforms, and there were real reforms too, so occupied the people that they did not see the slow motion underneath of the whole process of government growing remoter and remoter. To live in this process is absolutely not to be able to notice it. Please try to believe me says this old German from the grave. Please try to believe me, and unless one has a much greater degree of political awareness, acuity, than most of us ever had the occasion to develop, each step was so small, so inconsequential, so well explained, or on occasion regretted, that unless one were detached from the whole process from the beginning, unless one understood what the whole thing was in principle, after all these little measures that no patriotic German could resent must someday lead to, one no more saw it developing from day to day than a farmer in the field sees the corn growing. And then one day, it is over his head. He goes on to say, Pastor Niemöller spoke for the thousands and thousands of men like me when he spoke too modestly of himself and said that, you know, when the Nazis attacked the communists, he was, not a, he was a little uneasy, but after all, he was not a communist. And so he did nothing. And then they attacked the socialists and he was a little uneasier, but still he was not a socialist, and he did nothing. And then the schools, the press, the Jews, and so on. And he was always uneasier, but still he did nothing. And then they attacked the church, and he was a churchman, and he did something. But then it was too late. 
You see, one doesn't see exactly how or where to move. Believe me, this is true. Says this now dead good German from the grave to all of us, in my opinion today. Believe me, this is true. Each act, each occasion is worse than the last, but only a little worse. You wait for the next and the next. You wait for that one great shocking occasion. Thinking that others, when such a shock comes, will join you in resisting somehow. You don't want to act or even to talk alone. You don't want to go out of your way to make trouble. Why not? Well, you're not in the habit of doing it. It's not just fear, fear of standing alone that restrains you. It's also genuine uncertainty. Uncertainty is a very important factor. And instead of decreasing as time goes on, it grows. Outside in the streets, in the general community, everyone seems happy. You, one hears no protests, certainly sees none. You know, in France or Italy, there'll be slogans against the government painted on walls and fences. In Germany, outside the great cities, perhaps. But in the university community, in your own community, you speak privately to your colleagues, some of whom feel, certainly feel as you do, but what do they say? They say, eh, it's not so bad. You're seeing things. You're an alarmist. And you, are, and you are an alarmist. You are saying that this must lead to that. And you can't prove it. These are the beginnings, yes, but how do you know for sure when you don't know the end? How do you know or even surmise the end? On the one hand, your enemies, the law, the regime, the party, the Nazis, they intimidate you. On the other hand, your colleagues poo-poo you as pessimistic or even neurotic. But the one great shocking occasion when tens or hundreds of thousands will join you, it never came. That's the difficulty. If the last and worst act of the whole regime had come immediately after the smallest and, and, and first and the smallest, thousands, yes, millions would have been sufficiently shocked if, let us say, the gassing of the Jews in 1943 had come immediately after the German firm stickers in the windows of non-Jewish shops in 33. But of course, that isn't the way it happened. In between came all the hundreds of little steps, some of them imperceptible, each of them preparing you not to be shocked by the next. Step C is not so much worse than step B, and if you didn't make a stand at step B, why should you take a stand at step C and so on to step D? And one day, too late, your principles, if you were ever sensible of them, all rush in upon you. The burden of self-deception has grown too heavy. And some minor incident, in my case, my little boy, hardly more than a baby saying, Jew, swine, collapses it all at once, and you see that everything, everything has changed and changed completely under your nose. And the world you live in, your nation, your people, it's not the world you thought you were in at all. The forms are all there, all untouched, all reassuring, the houses, the shops, the jobs, the mealtimes, the visits, the concerts, the cinema, the holidays. But the spirit, which you never noticed because you made the lifelong mistake of identifying it with the forms, that spirit is changed. And now you live in a world of hate and fear. And the people who hate and fear do not even know it themselves. When everyone is transformed, it seems as if no one has transformed. And now you live in a system which rules without responsibility, even to God. So Milton Mayer says, how is this to be avoided? Among ordinary men, even among highly educated ordinary men, and his professor friend says, frankly, I do not know. I do not see even now how we could have stopped it. Many times since it happened, I've pondered that pair of great maxims, principus obsta and finem rispus, resist the beginnings and consider the end. But you must foresee the end in order to resist or even see the beginnings. You have to clearly see the end. And certainly, how is this to be done by ordinary men or even extraordinary men? And here we are. They thought they were free by Milton Mayer. This extraordinary book telling us now, speaking to us from 1954, speaking across a half a century to us, saying, consider what you're doing, what your country is doing in your name, and consider when you're going to speak up when you're going to do something. And welcome back.
Oh, my goodness. Margo in Eastman, Wisconsin. Hey, Margo, what's on your mind today? Oh, Tom, I feel like I'm a frog in a boiling pot of water. Yeah, yeah. I am so upset. I am 71 years old. I have never seen anything like this in my life. And what I watched, I lived in Arizona for two years. What they're doing with these children is unbelievable. It's a political ploy to get his GD wall up, and that is moronic. Yeah. And I think it goes beyond that, even Margot. I think he is. I think this is uh, uh, Stephen Miller was uh, bragging about this, who's the you know kind of racist in chief in the White House. And I think this is a shout out to the white racist base about how far he's willing to go. Yeah, I, I just don't understand it. I worked in early childhood for 30 years. And you cannot, these kids that I worked with came from horrendous homes. But they, what they're doing to these children now by taking away from their parents, that is going to imprint on them forever. And are we building another uh, resist the uh, another Al Qaeda with they're going to carry angry things about and not all Americans are like that. You know, I don't understand. Are we creating another terrorist society? I doubt it. I think it's far more likely because there's not a there's not an overarching ideology that or religion, basically. Catholicism but don't you does not. Think they'll get sucked into being haters on. Oh, I think yeah, I think you know, but I think it's far more likely instead of turning into terrorists because there's not a an organized structure to translate um, frustration and pain and anxiety into terrorism, um, you know, even on our southern border, unless you're speaking about the gangs. But I think what's more likely is you're going to see these children grow up to be people who have been broken. They're going to grow up to be alcoholics. They're going to grow up to be drug addicts. They're going to grow up to be abusers or abusees. They're going to grow up to be, you know, uh, people who are never able to find satisfaction or happiness, just like Donald Trump. You know, he was essentially abandoned by his parents. He was sent off to, to military school in the summers when he was home. His mother always went to Europe, so she didn't have to spend the summer with him. His father treated him like he was an annoyance, gave him money to go away. Um, these, he has this giant hole in his soul, which is why he's, uh, you know, why he behaves the way he does. And many of these children are going to have very similar holes. They probably will not act them out by becoming a real estate mogul because they don't have a father who's going to give them a couple hundred million dollars. But they, they will act it out. And whether they do so by, you know, by, by robbing banks or by, by beating up their wives or by being the person who gets beaten up. I don't know, but I, they're gonna be, they are wounded, they are damaged, and we are doing it. It's being done in our names, Margo. It's absolutely being done in our names. Margo, thank you for the call. Your, your point is so well taken. We'll be right back. It's 22 minutes past the hour. Welcome back. 22 minutes past the hour. Tom Hartman here with you. George in Chicago. Hey, George, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Um, I've got a simple suggestion for the Trump so-called administration um, based on the fact that no American, whether you're Democrat, Republican, Independent, or other, is in favor of illegal immigration. We're all opposed to it. But if they want to have a genuine preventative policy that will discourage adults from attempting to immigrate with children that are not their own, posing as a family. Well, all of us have seen TV cop shows where the cops take a swab from the inside of a cheek, and within a matter of hours or less than a day, they have a genetic profile of that person. And if uh, everybody who came to the border with children was swabbed and then uh, as a group put into a confinement under humane circumstances while the testing was being done, 
you would know in a day or so whether or not they were related and whether the adults were the This is, the it, it, it's not even necessary, George. I mean, you had over 300,000 border crossings last year. It was alleged by, 300,000, it was alleged by the Trump administration that there were some 40-odd kids who, who were brought by people who were not their parents. That has not even been demonstrated to be true, first of all. That's the allegation. We have no idea if there have been any convictions of this. And, and it's, it's just this is, this is the latest BS excuse, is that we're trying to stop child trafficking. There's no evidence of child trafficking, or whatever evidence there is is very, very slim. And it doesn't have to do with kids who are coming, presenting themselves as family members. It has to do with kids who are just showing up, you know, all by themselves. So this is, this is a, a whole other thing. Marty in Kansas City, Kansas. Hey, Marty, what's up? Yes, morning, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm 75. Uh, I have been slow to buy into the fascist thing that you and I've heard a lot of people talk about. But, yeah, I, I'm there. Uh, I recently, I'm about three-fourths through this book by Madeleine Albright, Fascism. I think you're probably familiar with it. Mm, I am. I have not read the book. I should get a copy what, of it. Yeah, let me tell you, it is a splash of real cold water in the face again. And, uh, yeah, I, I see it now. Uh, I didn't want to. But uh, there's a quote in there from Hitler when he was criticized by the West, and they accused him of being a savage barbarian. He made the comment, hell yes, we're barbarians, we're proud of it, and uh, we have no scruples, nor do we have any bourgeois hesitancies. And I look at this administration and I think, you know, it just rings so true, just absolute disregard for the truth, yeah. uh, just attacks every fabric of society and our institutions. I'm a lawyer, I've been a prosecutor, I'm a defense attorney now. I don't know if this guy is this brilliantly evil or if it's just his personality, and, and it's probably more towards the second part. I think it's the latter. He's been, he's been a king his entire life. He's never mm -hmm. had to answer to anybody. He was born rich. Mm -hmm. He's always run his own companies. He, 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 that's why he loves dictators. You know, mm -hmm. this, has been, this has literally been his life, his entire life. Whatever Donald Trump wanted, that's what he got. Yeah. He wanted a porn star, he yeah. got a porn star. He wanted the Playboy model, he got the Playboy model. He wanted, he wanted a new wife, he got a new wife. He wanted a new company, he got... He even had to declare bankruptcy a number of times, but he always got what he wanted. Yeah. And, yeah, and as Madeline points out, about half the world now is only democratic. This other half is, is this basically touches upon fascism, these strongmen leaders. Oh, and it's moving rapidly. It's moving and, rapidly. Uh, We're trying to get the, uh, the reporter who did this piece on what's going on in Hungary from the New York Times on the program as quickly as possible, because this yeah. is, you know, what, hap you know, what happened in, 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 in Turkey, uh, you know, what happened in Poland, now Hungary, now, oh, no, it's Romania. Romania is the, la the latest yeah. country to, just over the weekend to, to yeah. flip hard right. And this, this rise of fascism is worldwide. Marty, thanks for the call. Very, very well yeah. said. And thanks for listening to SiriusXM. Good talking with you. This, this is absolutely worldwide. This is a trend that was set off in the 1970s in a big way by the, by the Mont Pelerin Society guys, by the, by the libertarian billionaires, essentially. And this is where we're at. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Call 202-808-9925. And they're perfectly willing to use racial fear, anything that they can, basically, to support their uh, ultimately economic agenda. You know, in the world of work, one of the most important things is one of the things that people probably think the least about until they have to sit in it, which is their chair. And the X chair is absolutely extraordinary. This is the new high-tech, in fact, they've got a brand new version. It's called the X3, the newest version of the X chair. It is comfortable, it is high-tech, and yes, I'll say it, it is sexy. This chair is extraordinary, and it will dramatically, consequentially, improve your concentration and productivity because it's gonna help your posture. And you know, if you're not in pain, and, you're, and your blood is working, you know, flowing well, your brain is gonna work well. The new X3 is quite simply the most modern, ergonomic, high-tech, comfortable office chair in the world, period. The X3's unique ATR fabric makes it feel like you're literally floating on air. And its patented split-back lumbar technology provides a cradling, customized feel that has to be experienced to believe. You need to see and feel the X3 for yourself. Go to xchairtom.com. That's xchairtom.com now to check out the X3's perfect blend of design and ergonomics. A lot of people 
you know, checking these out and going for these chairs. Supplies are limited, so don't wait. Order at xchairtom.com. And if you do it now, you get $100 off. That's xchairtom.com. Or you can call them at 1-844-4-X-CHAIR. This chair comes with a 30-day, no-questions-asked guarantee of complete satisfaction. That's how good it is. Go to xchairtom.com right now. Use the code TOM, T-H-O-M, to get a free footrest. xchairtom.com. Now back to the podcast. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which was created by Dodd-Frank and Elizabeth Warren, it was her, her child, basically. Her argument was, we make sure that when people sell, when companies sell toasters, that they don't blow up in a consumer's kitchen and catch their house on fire. Right? We, you know, the underwriters lab and all that kind of, there's, there's, there's certifications and the government moderates and mediates some of this stuff. So let's make sure if we're going to sell somebody a financial instrument, a pension, a, an investment, whatever it may be, that it's not going to, you know, a mortgage, a student loan, that it's not going to blow up in their face, that they're not being conned or scammed. And so they created the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau to look for people in the banking industry who were stealing from us. And they found $13 billion worth of people in the banking industry stealing from us last year, took that money back from them, and literally returned it to us, the consumers. Now, that does not go over well with the banksters, right? The banksters are quite upset about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and, and you know, the fact that there is a government agency that can act on behalf of you and me, on behalf of consumers. Oh, my God, we can't have that. The Republican Party has pledged its loyalty to the top 1% and the corporations that made them rich, period. Not the small businesses of America, not the medium-sized businesses of America, but to the billionaires and the very large corporations, including those corporations based in other countries and those oligarchs based in other countries. And this was, you know, this was even, uh, you know, before Trump came along to a large extent, this was going on. But now Trump has turned it into official policy. And with regard to the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, it's entirely Trump, right? The CFPB was running really, really well under Obama and recovering billions of dollars on your behalf and my behalf. And now Trump puts Mick Mulvaney in charge of it, his OMB director, former, you know, uh, right-wing hack congressman, puts Mick Mulvaney in charge of it. And Mick Mulvaney is just trying to destroy the agency. So I get this email from uh, Josh Nelson at Credo Action. And the website is credoaction.com. And it says, stand with Senator Warren. Stop a Trump official from trading lobbyist contributions for access. And he's talking about, they're talking about Mick Mulvaney. And so they've got this petition together over Credo Action. And it goes to the Deputy Counsel, Deputy General Counsel for General Law and Ethics, a woman by the name of Sonia White. And she's the one who has oversight over the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And the... The request is investigate interim director Mick Mulvaney's potential conflicts of interest and publicly detail what steps you have taken to ensure his status practice, stated practice of trading access for lobbyist contributions does not undermine the CFPB's core mission. And here's the, 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 the letter I got, the email that I got. Trump's interim director of the CFPB, Mick Mulvaney, has requested a budget of zero for the entire agency. Get this? He can't kill the agency. The law created it. He can't tell it to do insanely stupid things because the law says it's got to help consumers. So for next year's budget, which starts on October 1st, he says, well, just fund the agency at zero. We'll fire everybody. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll disconnect the phones. There'll be nobody here. It'll still exist, right? In theory, but fund them at zero. And not only that, Mick Mulvaney has also joined forces with payday lenders, and he has fired every member of the CFPB's Consumer Advocacy uh, Advocate Advisory Panel. Every, they had this panel of people who, you know, oversaw what they were doing, who made sure that they were acting on behalf of consumers. He's fired every single one of them. 
The letter goes on to say Mulvaney is the same person who received hundreds of thousands of dollars in contributions from the banking and predatory lending industries and then told a room full of bank lobbyists that when he was a congressman, he only held meetings with lobbyists who donated money to his campaigns. Elizabeth Warren does not think it's a coincidence that Mulvaney only took, only took meetings with, only would visit with lobbyists who gave him money when he was a congressman, and now the industries that have given him money who don't like the CFPB, in, they've invested hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of dollars in Mick Mulvaney, and now Mick Mulvaney is going to protect their billion-dollar revenue stream, multi-billion-dollar revenue stream. This is why I keep saying, you know, the best investment you can make in America right now is to buy a Republican politician because they will do what you want. They will put it into law. And the banksters own the Trump administration. I mean, you know, all these top Goldman Sachs officials that Trump brings into Treasury and now he's got Mulvaney at OMB and all these guys, you know, they're, they're either banksters or they're the toadies of the banksters. In the case of Gary Cohn, and, uh, and Steven Mnuchin, they're actual Goldman Sachs bankers. In fact, the most senior levels of Goldman Sachs banksters. In the case of Mick Mulvaney, they're just toadies for banksters, right? Been taking money from banksters his whole life. This is, this is one small piece of this large and broad arc of outrageous conduct, which now has come down to Sophie's Choice. I tweeted out to uh, Rob Reiner. I don't know if he saw it over the weekend, but, uh, you know, Rob's a good guy and, uh, and is very, very concerned about what's going on. And I tweeted out to him that if you know, and I also sent this, uh, an email uh, saying the same thing, essentially, to a few other friends I have in Hollywood, saying, if you know who ho owns the rights to Sophie's Choice, the movie, now would be a great time to re-release that movie. To see that movie in theatrical re-release or even to have just a big splash, you know, roll it out again, maybe, you know, with a, with a, with a little uh, uh, opening, a minute or two opening with uh, Meryl Streep or some of the other actors uh, in Sophie's Choice. To get Americans to watch that movie, to have a sense of what it must be like to be a, to be a mother knowing you're about to lose at least one of your children. I, I, was, I was so impacted by that movie. It took me uh, a week to recover from having seen it. Louise and I saw it together. I still remember walking out of the theater. It was in Vermont. It was in the fall. It was cold. Maybe it was in the spring, whatever it was. It wasn't summer or winter yet. And, and uh, I walked out of that theater with tears in my eyes. It was on downtown Main Street in, in um, Plymouth, New Hampshire. Excuse me. It wasn't Montpelier. And uh, just shocked. Absolutely shocked. And I don't know if it's still playing or where it's still playing. I should, should look that up. But that's what's going on right now. That is what we are inflicting on these mothers and children and fathers and children and their children. And this is just so wrong. Jason in Bryson City, North Carolina. Hey, Jason. Thanks for calling. What's hey, on your mind? Hey, Tom. You know, you had a caller on earlier talking, you know, and you were talking about the rise of Hitler in Germany during the 30s, but I think a really important point that we should add to this is how American and British bankers funded the whole thing. Uh, funded well, not the whole thing, but they, they played a role in well, it, certainly. A, consider, a considerable part. I yeah, mean, and, and Brown and, Brothers Harriman. I mean, you know, it was that was uh, Prescott Bush's bank. He was funding Hitler right up to and after uh, funding of foreign governments had been banned by FDR. FDR, you know, nearly nearly threw him in prison, and he was the United States senator at the time. Absolutely, absolutely, and and I don't I don't know how many uh, Russians would have been saved, or Jewish people would have been saved if Standard Oil may not have sold certain chemicals to him during during the war to produce uh, synthetic. Or oil. IBM, you know, IBM gave them the the, the computer system that they used for the final solution <laughs> to keep Isn't track of everybody. And, 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 yeah, and, we and played a role in it. We, yeah. it's we, we see the same thing happening in this country. And now, the one thing, so. by the way, Jason, that, that all of those people who played that role in it, and Fritz Tyson in this book that I've been reading, you know, I paid for Hitler. Um, the one thing that all of them, the way that they rationalized their behavior was they said, we're making money. 
You know, this is the free market. I mean, you know, what you trying, you telling you trying to tell me that the free market shouldn't exist, that I shouldn't be able to make money, and and well, you know, <laughs> here we are again. The, the, the free market has no morals on its own. So yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's intrinsically money, sociopathic. It's the only quest. Yep, and so when you combine a sociopathic leader with a sociopathic uh, marketplace, what do you get? Fascism. Sixteen minutes past the hour. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Back with more of the news of the day and your calls. Have we reached that fascist inflection point yet? Are we yet able to look back with horror? Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And uh, on the line with us is Deborah Holland. Deborah is the, uh, uh, she has won the Democratic nomination to run for Congress in New Mexico's first district. Uh, which makes it nearly certain that she would make history for New Mexico uh, if she became our nation's first Native American congresswoman. Uh, she called the win for victory for working people, a victory for women, and a, ver- a victory for India country. And I wanted to get her on. Deb Holland, uh, welcome to the program. Thank you so much. Thank and you for having me. My pleasure. And I should say, your name, uh, while it sounds like it's pronounced like the country, is spelled H-A-A-L-A-N-D. Uh, your website, correct. right? Your website is Deb for Congress, just D E B F O R Congress dot com, and okay. people can tweet you at Deb for Congress N M D E B number four Congress N M like New Mexico. So if yes. I've got all that right, great. So tell tell me what what uh, what brought you to to running for Congress? You know, from the first district of New Mexico. Sure. Well, I've been involved in politics here in New Mexico for a long time. I'm a grassroots organizer. I've worked on a lot of campaigns. I I ran for lieutenant governor in 2014. I was the state chairwoman of the Democratic Party from 2015 to 2017. Uh, I am proud to have uh, helped to, you know, win a tremendous victory for our state in the 2016 elections, even though uh, we can't say that for, for some of the country. But um, I just felt that um, I wanted to, after my term was up, I felt like I wanted to continue to, to help the people of New Mexico to, to, you know, fight for the things that we all care about uh, right here in this beautiful state of ours. And so, uh, yes, I, I, I felt like, um, like I could be a good representative because I know what it's like to, uh, for probably 99% of New Mexicans in our state. Yeah. What are the what what are the issues that you're running on, Deb? So, in our primary campaign, we have talked a tremendous amount about climate change, about uh, moving New Mexico into 100% renewable energy. We have over 300 days of sun per year uh, here in the land of enchantment. Uh, I've also, you know, half of our state is Medicaid eligible. I, I believe that uh, every New Mexican and every de- American deserves to have reliable health care. And so we've, we've uh, campaigned on that a great deal. And also I've, uh, we recognize the, the role uh, that Citizens United has played in our politics. And so I'm also running on ending that, on, on you know, getting huge, dark corporate money out of politics and, and you know, shining some light on, on uh, who's funding campaigns and, and how we can make sure that we're serving the people and not the not the big corporation that's, all the time. That's great stuff. And and uh, Deb, who are you running against? What's the who's the Republican? Is there a Republican incumbent there? Uh, yes, there's not a Republican incumbent. Uh, the seat belongs to Michelle Lujan Grisham right now. She's running for governor of New Mexico, and she won her primary, so she'll be up against Steve Pierce. For, you know, the for, he he's actually the uh, how, the representative in southern New Mexico right now. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so she'll. Um, I'm confident she'll win her race for governor, and and I will be the next congresswoman in her place. That's that's wonderful. Uh, we're talking with Deb Holland, the New Mexico State Democratic former New Mexico State Democratic Party chair, running for the U.S. Congress for New Mexico's first district. Deb, as as uh, as a Native American, um, the Native American issues, in my opinion, get massive short shrift. Uh, they're they're f- f- very often just ignored by the by the corporate media, the mainstream media. Um, I spent some time back uh, more than a decade ago working on uh, on an Indian reservation in in uh, Arizona and was um, 
astonished by uh, some of the the depth of some of the poverty that I saw and some of the con mm -hmm. conditions. What is the state of, of uh, Indian country in general in New Mexico? And, mm -hmm. and what is the state of, of, of politics around that? Here in New Mexico, I feel fortunate, actually. We've had some wonderful governors, some, some wonderful activists, advocates, tribal leaders here in New Mexico who have really forged a good relationship with the state. Uh, under Governor Bill Richardson, we had uh, the uh, State Tribal Collaboration Act passed, for example, and also Governor Richardson elevated the um, Indian Affairs to a cabinet-level position. So uh, we, we have laws that protect our voters here in New Mexico, our Native American voters in New Mexico, and we contribute a tremendous amount to our economy, both through our economic endeavors and through tourism. So uh, I feel that uh, for the most part, uh, the, the legislators, the decision makers in New Mexico realize uh, that, uh, you know, a good relationship with Indian tribes benefits all of us. And that's what I think they've really tried to do. So I realize it's not like that in every single state. Uh, so I, I am fortunate that, that we have that here. Marvelous stuff. Deb Holland, uh, maybe our first Native American member of Congress. Do I have that right? You would, you would be the first? Yes. That, uh, woman. Woman. First, first okay. Native first Congress woman. Woman. Uh, yes. Native American. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> that, that caveat. But that's, that, this is extraordinary. And, and Deb, uh, you know, so I, I just wanted to highlight and feature what you're doing. Uh, I'm assuming people want to help out whatever information is available at Deb for Congress, forcongress.com. Absolutely, yes. I'd love for anyone to go to our website. You know, you can donate on that page. That's what right. every campaign needs, but you know that. Sure, and, whatever, whatever um, it may be. And, and, and is it, I'm assuming you have a Facebook page as well? We do, yes. Deb, it's Deb Holland for Congress. And that's spelled H-A-A-L-A-N-D. L-A-N-D, yes. Right. Okay. Deb, great talking that's with correct. you. Thanks so much for having me. You all my, take care. Have a good day. My pleasure. You too, and, and good luck. I wish you the very best. I, this, and I hope that we can have a conversation uh, when you're in Congress. Okay, let's pick up some phone calls here. Brad in Elk Grove Village, Illinois. Hey, Brad, what's on your mind? Um, my, my thought is this. Uh, the Republicans are all about the law. Thank you. In fact, well, they say I, they are. I've made, comments, <laughs> I've made comments online that they worship it, the law more than they worship God and Jesus Christ. And that's something no one online has ever contradicted me about. And I think when you look at the law and stuff like that, it can be used as a force of control, whereas Jesus Christ was all about freedom and the ability to decide your, in this case, eternal fate. So the point is democracy is as as, as imperfect as it is, is a lot closer than the Republicans, which are about the republic and the state and the security of that state. Yeah. And, uh, you know, fine point. Fine point, Brad. Well made. Rich and Cedro Willie Washington. Hey, Rich, Rich, what's up? Rich? Listening on Sirius XM? Maybe he's got his mute button jammed or something. Keith in Wilmington, Delaware. Hey, Keith, what's on your mind today? How you doing, Tom? Long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you, Keith. I, I just have to say that America has selective amnesia. This whole thing with the separation of children, which I do not agree with, has been going on in this country forever. Africans have been separated from their children from ever. During World War II, the Japanese were separated from their children, and they... In the early 70s and to the 80s, before this, uh, the Russian adoption, people were having their children taken away. Well, it's been happening it's, in Indi Indian country right up to the last 20 years. It's just that, you know, America, which I don't have no problem with it. It's the greatest country in the world. I wouldn't want to be anywhere else as an African-American. It's just that America makes these promises that they know they not cannot keep. You know, the hope and honor of being equal in a society, it's not going to happen for me or anyone that looks like that, because there's always going to be, you just, you know, the majority is going to look out for themselves. That's always the way it has been, and that's the way it's always going to be. We just just need to stop faking it. We need to educate our people on 
all history of America, just not European history, because there's no empire that has been great. We just have to put it that way. Thank you for thank you for allowing me to say that. Sure, and you said it very well, Keith. And I, I think you're 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 ab- unfortunately absolutely right. Tom in Media, Pennsylvania. Hey, Tom, what's up? Yeah, good, good morning. It's afternoon out here where I am. But uh, yeah, this immigration situation is is a tough situation in terms of if someone comes over here illegally, if you cannot take the children. I mean, you cannot allow the children to stay with them in any type of custody situation. I think immigration advocates pushed Why not? that court calling a while ago, correct? No, no, you can. Uh, well, first of all, uh, the, the, the process historically was that we didn't, that, that we, we dealt with people who were in this country illegally through a process that was a civil process rather than a criminal process. Um, you know, they were subject to deportation, they were subject, but, you know, basically they had to show up in court. A lot of them didn't. I get that, you know, the whole catch and release thing. Um, but that was a way of minimizing the cost of the government. But if well, Trump wants, if, if, Trump, if Trump wants to make the assertion that these people are actually committing, you know, felony crimes, and, you know, the law arguably does say that, and they should be detained, then we should have detention facilities that allow for families. It's real simple. I mean, you know, you don't have to separate people from their children. You don't have to. We'll be, we'll be back. Hey, do you brush with an electric toothbrush or have you wanted to? If you're using one of the, one of the older, bigger, bulkier, you know, and some of them you know, are so aggressive they can even damage your mouth, uh, tooth, electric toothbrushes, uh, or if you've never... Th- used an electric toothbrush, I want you to pay attention. There's a new electric toothbrush. Time Magazine called it the invention of the year, right? Uh, It's called Quip, Q-U-I-P. It's slim, it's lightweight, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush. It's got a little AAA battery inside that powers it and powers it for months at a time uh, between changes. And it, it does a really great job. It aggressively cleans your teeth, but it does so in a way that's good for your gums and good for your teeth. It's a, the perfect two-minute clean. So check this thing out. And it's great for traveling. It comes with a little tube that you can drop it in to travel because, like I said, it's about the size of a regular toothbrush, much, much smaller than your, than your big electric toothbrushes. And you can find out all about it at getquip.com Tom. That's G-E-T, getquip, Q-U-I-P, dot com slash T-H-O-M. Getquip.com slash Tom for more information. It's only 25 bucks and they send you the refills, the the brush heads that you're supposed to replace every three months. Every three months, they'll send those to you for only $5 free shipping. It's an amazing deal. Getquip.com slash Tom. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back to the third hour of our program. Tom Hartman here with you. Johan Hari is the author of Lost Connections, a, a new book. It's The subtitle is The Science Behind Depression Exposed. His previous book, Chasing the Scream, uh, kind of got close to some of these topics. And after the suicide of Anthony Bourdain, in fact, there's been kind of a, a, a rash of recent celebrity suicides, and the, the news story, which we talked about on this program a couple of weeks ago, a, a major story in the New York Times, about how suicide rates in the, uh, among, particularly among white men in the former, uh, formerly industrial part of the country, but also in, in, um, in Appalachia, across the country, are on a rise. You know, what the, hell, what the heck is going on here? Uh, Johan Hari, welcome back to the program. Hi, Tom. It's great to be back with you. It's great having you with us. You have uh, uh, not just studied this extensively, but written a brilliant book about it. Um, to what extent do you think that this, you know, there's, there's uh, to, to, to broadly categorize kind of endogenous depression, depression that comes from within us, depression that is the result of uh, the consequence of something largely or purely biological, and then there is exogenous depression, depression that is the consequence of things that have happened to us. Um, and maybe, I don't know, a third category, I guess it would fall into exogenous, uh, but um, maybe depression caused by the way we eat, the way we live, drugs we're taking, whatever. What do you, where are we at? What's the state of depression in America? And what, 
What are you finding as a major cause? And that's not even to get into Wilkerson and, and Pickett's uh, work on how inequality produces depression. Well, I wanted to understand this for a very personal reason. You know, when I was a teenager, I'd gone to my doctor and I'd explained that I had this feeling like pain was leaking out of me, that I couldn't control it or regulate it. I felt very ashamed of it. And, and my doctor told me a story that most of your listeners who've had depression will have been told, an entirely biological story about why I felt this way. My doctor said it was just a problem in my brain. And for 13 years, I took the maximum possible dose of chemical antidepressants that you can. I got a bit of relief from them, but I remained depressed. So I was kind of puzzled by a few mysteries, really. Why was I still depressed when I was doing everything I was being told to do by my doctor, by the culture? And also, you know, I'm 39 years old. The bigger mystery was every year that I've been alive, depression and anxiety have been increased in, across the Western world and particularly here in the United States. And obviously the suicide rate is one of the most terrible indicators of the extreme edge of that. So I ended up going on this big journey across the world. I wanted to meet the leading experts about what causes depression and anxiety and what solves them and just people with very different perspectives all over the world. And I learned lots of things, but I learned there's, there's actually scientific evidence for nine different causes of depression and anxiety. Well, my doctors told me that, that the biological factors in depression isn't wrong. There are real biological factors that can make depression worse. But what I learned is actually only two of the factors that are causing depression and anxiety to rise so much are biological. The rest are factors in the way we live. And I go through them, obviously, in my book, Lost Connections. And once you understand what these causes are, it opens up a very different set of solutions. But, and obviously, I can go through some of the specific causes. But I think at the heart of it, for many of these causes, not all, is everyone listening to your show knows they've got natural physical needs, right? You need food. You need water. You need shelter. You need clean air. If I took any of those things away from you, you'd be in real trouble real fast. But there's equally strong evidence that human beings have natural psychological needs. You need to feel you belong. You need to feel your life has meaning and purpose. You need to feel that people see you and value you. You need to feel you've got a future that makes sense. And this culture we've built, this very neoliberal culture, is getting less and less good at meeting these deep underlying psychological needs that people have. And I think that's at the heart of why this epidemic of suicide and depression and anxiety is rising year after year. And that opens up a very different set of solutions that I've seen being tried all over the world that deal with these deep underlying causes. For example? Well, I'll give you one example. We are the loneliest society there has ever been. There's a study that asks Americans, how many close friends do you have who you could call on in a crisis? And when they started doing this study years ago, the most common answer was five. Today, the most common answer is none. There are more people who have nobody to turn to than any other option. Wow. And we are, as human beings, a social species. We evolved to live in tribes. In the circumstances where we evolved, if you were cut off and separated from the tribe, you were depressed and anxious for a really good reason. You were about to die, right? These are our natural physical impulses. So I want to figure out, there's a lot of evidence Professor John Cassiopo at the University of Chicago is one of the leading figures showing this, that depression, sorry, that loneliness causes depression and anxiety. So I wanted to find out, well, what's the antidepressant for that, right? What can we do about that? And one of the heroes of my book, Lost Connections, is a doctor who pioneered an approach based on this. Sam Everington is a doctor in a poor part of East London, in, where I'm from in Britain. And Sam was very uncomfortable because he had loads of patients coming to him with terrible depression and anxiety. And like me, he's not opposed to chemical antidepressants, but he could see that on their own they were not solving the problem. He decided to pioneer a different approach. There was an area behind the doctor's surgery that was just kind of like scrubland where dogs would go and mess. And, and one day a, a woman came to him called Lisa Cunningham, who had been shut away in her home with terrible depression and anxiety for seven years. And Sam said to Lisa, don't worry, I'll carry on giving you these drugs. I'm also going to do something else. I'm going to prescribe you to take part in a group. This area behind the surgery, what I'd like you to do is turn up a couple of times a week with other depressed and anxious people. I'm going to turn out with you, and we're going to turn this area into something beautiful. The first time the group met, Lisa was literally physically sick with anxiety. But a couple of things happened as the, the weeks and months passed. First thing was the people in that program decided they, they realized they had something to talk about that wasn't how bad they felt. They decided they were going to learn gardening. They were going to turn this into a beautiful garden. These were inner-city people that didn't know anything about gardening. They started to get their fingers in the soil. They started to learn the rhythms of the seasons. There's a lot of evidence 
exposure to the natural world as a really powerful antidepressant. Even more powerfully, they started to form a tribe. They started to form a group. They started to look after each other and care about each other and notice when they weren't there. The way Lisa put it to me, as the garden began to bloom, we began to bloom. There was a study in Norway of a very similar program um, that, that found it was more than twice as effective as chemical antidepressants. And this is something I saw in the research from my book, Lost Connections, all over the world, from San Francisco to Sydney to Sao Paulo. The most effective strategies for dealing with depression and anxiety are the ones that deal with the reasons why we're depressed and anxious in the first place. And that requires us to explain to people, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, you're not crazy. You're not a machine with broken parts. You're a human being with unmet needs. And what you need is love, support, and lots of practical help to get those deeper needs met. And I go through my book, Lost Connections, obviously lots of different ways we can do that. But there is evidence from all over the world that these strategies work. How, uh, how effective are these sorts of things? Uh, you know, we're talking with Johanna Hari, the author of Lost Connections. How, how effective are these strategies for people who have uh, who have been told, you know, well, like yourself, I mean, for years you struggled with the depression. You were told that it was just a chemical imbalance. Um, I get uh, whenever, uh, for example, whenever there's a school shooting and, and it's been shown that the kid was taking an antidepressant, particularly the SSRIs, which, you know, are black boxed for suicide. And, and there seems to be a correlation between taking SSRI drugs and this loss of affect, which might lead somebody to, to not view the people they're shooting as actual human beings. And whenever we talk about that, you know, I get all these people calling in going, I was terribly depressed. I was suicidal. I started on Prozac and I've been great for the last two years. Uh, speak to that. Yeah, I think we need to think about chemical antidepressants a bit differently to how we have up to now. Chemical antidepressants give real relief to some people. They gave me some relief, but they didn't solve the problem for me. They gave me some relief, but they didn't solve the problem. All the long term research into chemical antidepressants suggests I was quite normal. About 65% of people given these drugs, if you look at the long-term research, do become depressed again. doesn't mean the drug didn't give some help. doesn't mean there isn't a significant number of people who are given help. But it's not solving the problem for most of us, as you can see from the fact that, you know, we've had 30 years of every year prescribing more and more antidepressants, and every year depression has continued to rise. doesn't mean the drugs haven't given some help. It's just not enough to solve the problem. One of the people who really helped me to think differently about this was this wonderful South African psychiatrist I went to interview called Derek Summerfield. Um, Dr. Summerfield happened to be in Cambodia in 2001 when they first introduced chemical antidepressants in that country. And um, the local doctors, the Cambodian doctors, had never heard of these drugs. So he explained what they were. And they said to him, oh, we don't need them. We've already got antidepressants. And he said, what do you mean? Uh, he thought they were going to talk about some kind of herbal remedy or something. Instead, they told him a story. There was a farmer in their community who one day stood on a landmine and got his leg blown off. So they gave him an artificial leg, and he went back to work in the rice fields. But um, apparently, it's very painful to work underwater when you've got an artificial leg. I'm guessing it's pretty traumatic for obvious reasons. The guy started to cry all day, didn't want to get out of bed. Classic depression, right? They said to Derek, Dr. Summerfield, so we gave him an antidepressant. And he said, well, what? They explained that they went and sat with him. They listened to him. They realized that his pain made sense. They figured... If they bought him a cow, he could become a dairy farmer. He wouldn't be in this position that was causing him so much distress. So they bought him a cow. Within a couple of weeks, his crying stopped. Within a month, his depression was gone. They said to Derek, so you see, doctor, that cow, that was an antidepressant, right? Now, you've been raised to think about depression the way we have. That sounds crazy, right? You know, I went to my doctor for an antidepressant. He gave me a cow. But what those Cambodian doctors knew intuitively is what the leading medical body in the world the World Health Organization has been trying to tell us for years, if you're depressed, if you're anxious, like I say, you're not crazy. We've got to understand the deep underlying factors that are driving up this depression, anxiety, and suicide epidemic. The biology of human beings in the United States did not change in the last 30 years, right? We didn't suddenly all have defective brains just spontaneously. What happened is a whole range of social factors that cause depression and anxiety have increased. I go through the science and lost connections. If you go to work tomorrow and you have low or no control over your work, you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious. If you had a traumatic childhood and you haven't been given a place where you can release the shame that that causes in people, you are much more likely to become depressed and anxious and much more likely to commit suicide. 
if you're acutely lonely, there's a whole range of these options, a whole range of these causes that I go through for which there's very strong scientific evidence. And talking about just the biology, the biology is real. Of course, your genes can make you more vulnerable to depression and anxiety. There are real changes in the brain that begin once you become depressed that can make it somewhat harder to yeah. get out. Johan, we're, we're out of time. Uh, hang on just a second. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our guest, Johan Hari, his book, Lost Connections, The Science Behind Depression Exposed. It's absolutely brilliant. TheLostConnections.com. Thank you, Johan. Thank you so much, Tom. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. Viagra for your brain, but don't tell Limbaugh he'll want some. Harry in Eureka, California. Hey, Harry, what's on your mind? Thank you. It was my impression that at one point during World War II, when they were... Uh, putting yellow stars on the sleeves of people about to be executed, that a group of people who were not Jewish went in solidarity, and you, they simultaneously put yellow stars on their sleeves in solidarity with that, and thus confused the government. What about the chance of doing that for the brown and the, uh, the migrants and the, the poor people? What, yeah. Couldn't uh, we do something like that? Not a, not a crucifix, but literally uh, the yellow star without the word Juden in it. Wouldn't that be something that we could visually show that we're at odds with what's going on? It would be. And the use of symbols is a powerful, powerful thing. Just look at the Tea, tea Party. You know, they, they, uh, they used the tea bag as the symbol and, and uh, you know, it became the logo of the movement. I'm not sure that the yellow star is the appropriate one, Harry, but it may well be. Um, you know, but whether this movement is even going to, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the teabagging movement, the Tea Party movement became a big deal because it had, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars behind it. It was being funded by billionaires. Um, on our end, we've got, you know, I doubt anybody who's going to turn this into a logo. But what we can do and what we should do is be registered to vote and be sure to get out there and vote and, and vote the bums out of office. I mean, these Republicans who are behaving like, like sociopaths, you know, it's like enough already. Uh, thank you for the call, Harry. Carol, Carol in Manesson, Pennsylvania. Hey, Carol, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. Um, you mentioned the beating heart of democracy. Yes, Thomas Paine's phrase. life support right now. Yeah. I, agree. I uh you were mentioning Sophie's choice and I had the same reaction you did when I first saw it. I recently bought that uh movie on uh I think it was eBay I bought it on. Mm -hmm. And it is very relevant and people should really watch it. I hope they do post it on on Showtime or HBO. Oh. But there's a movie on right now on Showtime called The Zookeeper's Wife. Have you seen that? I have not. Oh, you have to. It's a great film. It takes place in Warsaw during World War II, mm -hmm. and it is just excellent, and it's a true story, and uh, I, I highly recommend everyone see that because that's also relevant. Mm -hmm. I mean, they did take children from their parents then, too, in Warsaw. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. But, I'll, I'll have to check it out. Carol, thank yeah, you. Yeah, do so. It's okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate the call. Jim in Littleton, Colorado. Hey, Jim, what's on your mind? I hope I can repeat it as good as I did to the other guy. Uh, I just wanted to complain about, you know, this voting thing, you know, interfering with our voter, uh, the Russians. And I'm like, I don't blame the Russians for interfering. Would you want Bilirian, who's yelling, bomb Russia, and Trump, who's wanting to do business with him? Who would you want if you were a Russian? You know, and they only spent $25 million, nothing. I laughed when I heard the amount of money they spent. I said, we spend a billion dollars for each candidate, and we're sitting there crying about 25 days. Let me get 25 million up, and I'll become president. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, Jim, that's, that's, that's not going to happen, but, but, but I, you know, I get your point. And, and yeah, I, I think uh, Vladimir Putin had a, had, a, had a real problem with Hillary Clinton. I get that. And, and we did mess in the Ukraine, and I get that. But all that said, we cannot allow foreign countries... And in my opinion, we, we cannot allow foreign billionaires or even domestic billionaires to gain control of our elections. And that's essentially what has happened. And the Supreme Court has made it possible, has facilitated it. And, and in fact, if you read the, the dissent, John Paul Stevens' dissent uh, in Citizens United, the, 20, the 20, 2010 case, October 2010, you can read it on the Supreme Court's site. He said in his dissent, if this decision stands, you are going to have foreign governments 
seizing control of our elections. He, the example he uses is Tokyo Rose, uh, the, the Japanese propagandist during World War II, would have been a legitimate funder of, a, of an American political candidate. And that that is just fundamentally wrong. And I agree. Richard in Greenville, Michigan. Hey, Richard, thanks for listening to WPRR. Yeah, what's, on, hi, what's on your mind? Um, I'm wondering, um, well, first, two quick questions. Uh, could it be that Trump has enacted this inhuman policy of taking away children to desensitize his base? I, I think what has happened is that they have overstepped. They, you know, and I think that they did this on Stephen Miller's advice. I, I believe him to be the architect of this process. I could be wrong, but I think that they've overstepped, Richard. I think that they've 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 gone they've gone too far. And and you had the the secretary of HEW or uh, excuse me Homeland Security this morning defending this practice, and uh, it's just astonishing. And then and then you get a, a Democratic member of Congress uh, using obscenities in a tweet about it. That's just incredible. We'll be back tomorrow. In the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Get out there, get active, tag, you're it. See you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.